0: Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I had the privilege, the opportunity to hear our guest present a few weeks ago at a symposium on reimagining primary care. The approach he and his colleagues are taking was a bit different than the mainstream And the initiatives that he discussed really sounded amazing and inspiring and something we need to be aware of and adopting. I'm really looking forward to diving a bit deeper and sharing all of these learnings with you all. So without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Cole Zanetti. He is a senior advisor for the Veteran Affairs National Center for Care and Payment Innovation. I'd never heard of that before, also known as CPPI, the National Center for Care and payment innovation, as well as the national VA's innovation ecosystem. In these roles, Dr. Zanetti leads and advises value-based care delivery and payment innovation pilots across the VA and leads and advises on national emerging technology innovation pilots within the VA. Dr. Zanetti also serves as the chief health informatics officer for the Ralph H. Johnson VA Medical Center in Charleston, South Carolina and as the director for digital health at the Rocky Vista University College of Osteopathic Medicine. He is trained in family medicine and leadership preventive medicine at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And he's also triple board certified in family medicine, preventive medicine, and clinical informatics. And in addition to that, he has a master's in public health from the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy. Dr. Cole Zanetti has served as a physician advisory committee member for the National Quality Forum and as a technical expert at CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Cole, what a pleasure and privilege to have you here today. How are you doing this morning?
1: Oh, fantastic, Zev. It's an honor to be here and uh, really enjoy your podcasts and uh, have look forward to this conversation for for a bit now. So thank you for having me. well, thank
0: you, Cole. You know, again, when I listened to you a few weeks ago back when I was in Boston and you were actually videoing into the conference, I was really struck by so many things about you and the work that's happening in the VA. Before we dive in, could you just at a high level, let's say you and I met, we're on the elevator, could you just give me that elevator speech what is your job and cuz it's so unusual at a high level what's the purpose what's the the why behind why the VA has a role like yours
1: That's a great question and simply put I'm here to serve as a, a resource for the VA to reimagine and create a new vision and pathway for how healthcare can and should be delivered for our veterans I get to work with multiple team members in various specialties at the national and and local levels to demonstrate pilots and effectively assess them, not just to look at it from the typical vantage point of, of one metric or typical quality metrics, but even look at ways to redefine measures that we should be measuring for our care teams, for our veterans and their caregivers.
0: Yeah, Well, thank you. That was outstanding. I'm going to come back to this issue of metrics because I I think it is so important. And so we're going to dig into that in a moment. But a follow up question. I think you and I, and I I suspect many of the listeners are uh, somewhat biased towards this issue of transformation and innovation. But the question I have is, how important is this work? I mean, the majority of what happens in healthcare is the day to day same old, same old, status quo, and again, also just incremental improvements, process improvement, you know, the daily quality improvement. So we're we're constantly looking to improve in that slow incremental way. But you're talking about a different level of of improvement that falls into innovation, transformation, as, as you put it, you know, reimagining. On a scale of one to ten, where would you place the importance of this work? And I know you're biased. I know we're we're a little biased <laughs> on this, but if you could remove that bias and just say, listen, Zev. Here's the number out of 10 of the importance, and this is why it's so important for patients, healthcare consumers, the American public.
1: Oh, that's a great question and a complicated answer. <laughs> but I, in totality, thinking about operations and needing to get work done and people cared for uh, in comparison to changing how we actually do it, you know, I, I would put, you know, 30% of our effort should actually be focused and dedicated to this type of transformational work. Hmm. And it's necessary to do so because often when we're looking at how work is done now, we have to acknowledge the data has demonstrated this over and over again. You know, If we continue to practice the way that we currently practice medicine, we're never going to have enough staff to do it. We see this every day. If we continue to practice the way that we currently practice, we're never going to have enough space to provision that care. And if we continue to practice the way that we practice, uh, we're we're going to see a continued escalation in healthcare team member burnout. Mm-hmm. We see one in five at some levels of people leaving healthcare. Mm. So, if we don't do this, the survival of our purpose and our mission. In medicine, is really at stake. It, it's it's a moral obligation, as I see it, uh, as a mission driven and uh, a calling as a profession. That this is core to why we're here is to constantly challenge ourselves on how we need to transform more effectively, uh, care for our patients, as well as a suitable and and realistic. Uh, job demand for our healthcare professionals. Well, I
0: couldn't agree more with you. I, I think, you know, just to recap what you said, what I heard was number one, this issue of, you know, just basic capacity and access to care. We will not be able to serve the American public and our patients and our communities unless we innovate and transform. You talked about not not just the patients and their family members, but also the people who are actually doing the work each and every day and and the level of burnout, which you're right. One and five are leaving, but one and two are burnt out and demoralized. And that is a daily situation that is getting worse. And it's only going to worsen the capacity issue which you mentioned. I really love your your phrase and your word. It, it, this is a matter of survival. And I also really am um, interested and appreciate that statement and that phrase. I know you're very, very careful about the words you use. You talked about it as a moral obligation, that, that innovation and transformation and care delivery and payment is not a fun thing, it's not a future thing, it's not a sideshow, it's not an ancillary thing. It actually is an issue of survival and moral obligation. Could you just say a word about when you say that phrase, moral obligation, what does that conjure up for you?
1: So we, we, we see it in the eyes of our colleagues every day. You know, in literature and and common vernacular in in today's culture, you you hear the term moral injury Mm -hmm. quite often. And this exists uh, because we have positioned ourselves in healthcare where we have unrealistic expectations that have been developed in terms of uh, certain quality markers or outcomes when the, the team that is held account to that don't have full control over achieving that. So w- when you see a situation of uh, continued uh, learned helplessness with once incredibly impassioned people that are here to serve and came into this profession for reasons of, of serving vulnerable people, you, we, we can't ignore that. And that's where I think this comes, you know, from. With me, is is we have to acknowledge that there is suffering uh, for our providers. And when you're on an airplane, the first thing they say is, you know, you have to put the oxygen mask on on you first before you can help someone else. Well, there's a, a conflict in our healthcare mantra of how can we say that we put ourselves first when we're here for our patients? And I, I think that moral conflict has allowed us to accept a, a certain level of uncomfortable and unjustified uh, expectations, more so than many other professions.
0: Yeah. You know, when you said we see it in their eyes daily, I it was just shocking how visceral that was for me, because I, I completely relate to it. And I think so many of the listeners, if not all the listeners, anyone who's involved in healthcare, that's our day-to-day. I mean, and and it's been going on for years, if not for decades, but it's, it's definitely, in my opinion, I think the literature would support this. It's gotten worse, and it's not just the pandemic by any means. It's the way we are delivering healthcare. I think you really nailed it. It is, what I see in the eyes is this moral injury is this learned helplessness is this suffering. And I'm so glad you called it out in that way and use those words because otherwise it, if we don't name it and take it head on, it becomes something that's hidden and shameful. And it's almost like, I, I think this is very true. We tend to blame the individuals. I think this is a societal thing as opposed to saying, no, when 40, 50, 60% of physicians, nurses are demoralized, disenfranchised, burnt out, suffering from moral injury, that is not an individual problem. That is a system problem. And to your point, we let it go on day and day. And I just want to say this also, because it's just, just to step back for a moment, here we are, you are a technologist, obviously you're you're a physician, a provider, you're a leader, but your expertise is in technology and in, in digital technology, AI, informatics, and this is what you do day in and day out, and design and, and build and deploy in what I believe is the largest healthcare system in the country. And yet, here we are, you as a technologist, and I really appreciate this, saying, listen, the reason I'm doing this is not because fun and games or for technology or anything like that. Or the reason I'm doing this is because this is about humanity. And it is such a remarkable connection, this issue of humanity and technology. And I think that's what struck me about you when I heard you underneath everything you were talking about. And we will get into some of the initiatives I'm particularly interested in, I think it's called Carecentra that you mentioned, some of the really amazing cutting edge technology innovations you're deploying. But underneath it all, there's something that is so powerful and so important to call out, but this is, isn't about R&D. This isn't about innovation. This isn't about transformation. When you said we need to devote 30% of our resources in improving in this transformational work, you're talking about an existential crisis that is at hand and that is getting worse and that most people are completely unaware of or ignore. Anyway, I, I just felt it was so important to, to to point that out, that here we are, you a technologist, and yet we're talking about the why in such an important, critical way. Just any sort of comment to that or thought about that?
1: Well, I appreciate you, you bring that up and in, or into focus because, yeah, it, it, there is no innovation or care transformation that is ever appropriate if it isn't centralized around this why, and the the why of how do we create things that reduce administrative burden, that improve personalized care, and improve convenience to care for all those involved. And we have ways of doing it. Uh, and we're obligated to address those ways in partnership with the various players that are having to use it every day. You know, the constructs of co-production or co-design mm-hmm. should not be just in human-centered design workshops. Uh, they're core essentials for how we need to obligate our efforts. And I think the easiest element related to this that I feel like, you know, at large in healthcare, we struggle with is there is a lack of regulation around clicks and time spent on certain activities within electronic health records. And those are not minuscule effects. Mm -hmm. When you have a patient in front of you that's talking to you about an incredibly horrific event or vulnerable situation, and your eyes are not gazed at them, but at a computer when we have technology that can essentially create a soap note without you having to type anything and we know this exists and we know it's a capability for infrastructure i i think it's something we have to reconcile because it's it's we currently have many elements of depersonalized and dehumanizing care that we've accepted because we're not as uh, rapidly changing in these areas and the VA has taken a great initiative to uh, really effectively work towards this, which is why I'm I'm so excited to be a part of this team, but it's everywhere. And it's, it's a national issue mm-hmm. that uh, should not just be deemed an innovation, but an expectation for appropriate care.
0: Why, and again, I appreciate you pointing out that the purpose you're working toward and using technology for is to address a very very real crisis in healthcare in that the system is depersonalizing and dehumanizing and disenfranchising and overwhelming for so many of in fact i would just say you know the majority of the clinicians and other providers the the staff that have to work in it and and yet we've accepted this we know this from the first days of our internship you just suck it up right i mean we use the analogy of the front line right The analogy is obviously a a military one, and it does feel like that. And I guess the question is, why is it that we feel like we're being thrust onto the front lines of a military exercise, as opposed to, I mean, what we're talking about is caring. I have to say, this conversation is just, it's gone in a direction I didn't think it was gonna go in. If I had a kind of a a religious person, a a pastor, a rabbi on, or or philosopher, or an ethicist, I, I could imagine this conversation happening but you're not any one of those things. You are a technologist. And it is so, so I think powerful to make this connection that what we need is not hand-holding or meditation or breathing exercises and nothing against all of those exercises, clearly important from a wellness perspective. But what we really need is to solve this problem through the -the state-of-the-art technology that you have been studying and implementing and deploying with your colleagues. And and now, not a 5 to 10 to 15-year plan because it it doesn't seem like it's gotten any better in the last few years. I mean, there's so much going on yet so little progress and which is why, again, we're going to get to some of the magical work you're doing to solve these problems, but it is, it's just startling. You mentioned something. I just want to go specific if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. You talked about measuring things that we can't be accountable for. I'm really, really curious. Because I do think measurement is such a, you know, you talked about the clicks and you talked about the hours. I mean, again, I I think most of the people who are listening understand that, and this is in the literature, right, that for a physician, particularly, I know uh, this is true for all physicians, but uh, some of the literature has been focused on primary care physicians. I've seen studies and research that shows that if the primary care physician... And their team did what they were supposed to do in in various facets of care, preventive and and, and acute care and chronic disease management and navigation services and and answering questions and referrals and and dealing with insurance. If they did all of that, it would literally take eighteen to twenty six hours, twenty six hours a day just to do their work, which is obviously ludicrous and yet the reality. And so you know you talk about that. And I think the clicks are driven often by the metrics and the measurements. And so what in your estimation is wrong about the metrics or what is it that we are being measured against that we cannot be held accountable for?
1: That is the question that I think we need to answer better as a country. And and the approaches that I take to this, and, and uh, you're right, it's 26.7 for primary care providers to do all the recommended preventive task force or preventive approaches. Hmm. And it's, uh, I believe, 9.3 hours if you use a fully optimized, fully staffed team, right? And it, it's impossible. And that's with a impanelment of, I think, 2,500 in that study. So keenly aware, obviously, of this pain. And I'm a preventive medicine specialist as well, right? So hmm. the training I had was we have to acknowledge number needed to treat. And what is the evidence behind some of these uh, approaches? More recently, just to provide a specific example, we're looking to streamline uh, advanced directive outreach for veterans. And I got outreached by my local geriatric service chief and he was bringing up, well, the evidence related to advanced directives is a bit murky, right? Regardless of what level or which Elements we're, we're going to be focusing on, I think it's really important to look at number need to treat as a prioritization. Number one, mm-hmm. to, to acknowledge impact because we have limited resources in healthcare. We have evidence based strategic approaches to leverage health communication that we don't consistently do in healthcare systems. We rely on public health departments to do these things, even though we are deemed responsible for population health. So I I think elements like that are very practical approaches of saying, these are the things we're going to prioritize because there's clear evidence on benefit in the number need to treat category for a specified population that we're responsible for. Mm -hmm. The other element here is looking at what is actually within the control of the healthcare team. So I think the simplest example is uh, for a diabetic patient. Uh, I can have a, a patient come and see me. We talk about their diabetes. I appropriately place an order for a hemoglobin A1C and uh, schedule the lab appointment. And the patient doesn't show up, right? So that doesn't mean that the healthcare team is done at this point. You know, you want to engage with a veteran, see if it was a transportation issue, involve the social worker if they're you know, obstacles in that case. But if the veteran doesn't show up again uh, as a healthcare team or provider in most cases, you know, I, I get dinged for an A1C not being done. Now, that's not within my control if people aren't showing up. My, what I am capable of doing as a provider is following evidence-based medicine, ordering the right tests, making sure that if someone is struggling to follow up, we're doing everything within our team's power to support that individual. But outside of those actions, it's really where the moral conflict comes in again. It, it's demeaning that a, a healthcare team can do all of that to support a patient and understanding the patient is going through their own struggles in this scenario, but could get criticized by leadership for not getting an A1C done, when they've done everything they possibly could. And that's just one example of Mm -hmm. many in terms of our Mm -hmm. measures. So what Mm -hmm. would we measure instead is a demonstration. Did you order the hemoglobin A1C? When the patient um, doesn't show up, did you reach out to the veteran to try to support them in uh, issues that they might be struggling with? Those are reasonable measures to hold a healthcare team accountable to. Um, but outside of that, the other elements that are not completely within our control are are essentially setting up people to be very frustrated.
0: Wow. You know what I really appreciate about you and I would say your colleagues, every time I speak to folks and I've had the privilege of speaking to folks at the VA, leaders like yourself, physician leaders in particular, and you talk this phrase about widening the aperture, realizing that- just prescribing the right medication, making the right diagnosis, ordering the right test, that's critical, but it is not sufficient that we have to wind the aperture and see what the entire sort of value stream is about and what it requires. And to your point, if you don't look at it and don't take a systems approach to it, and you're right, then it's like, well, doctor, nurse, team, how come the patient didn't show up? Or how come the patient isn't getting better? Well, You know, it's all those factors, those non clinical determinants of health and the contextual factors and whole person care. A lot of this research, by the way, has emerged from the VA, which is just shocking to me how much of it actually comes out of the VA. And what we're realizing when you widen the aperture is that those factors, those non clinical factors, the social determinants of health, the contextual factors, these factors actually have a much, much greater impact than the actual clinical factors. And yet, The system hasn't recognized this and hasn't embedded it into the actual sort of practice of medicine. And to your point, as a result, you look at the team and the doctor and the providers and say, Hey, listen, you failed. Whereas the failure is outside the scope of their purview, their vision, their awareness, their control. And and it isn't, and I'm taking a little bit of a leap here and I'm sort of going to ask you this question, but it seems to me that it is a systems issue the system has to actually be aware of this, has to implement it. And again, to your point of going back to how much we should be spending on this and funding this, which I know, I suspect I know is grossly inadequate. The system actually has to resource this. We need to build these things into the system so that the system actually helps the patient, their family members, and the provider and their teams. So just let me sort of try to rephrase that as a question. Do you agree with that? Do you see it that way? Do you see it a different way?
1: I absolutely agree with that. The and, and that's actually how I ended up coming to the VA. So I, I worked in the private sector within accountable care organization in New Hampshire, went to Denver, worked with a direct primary care group that is a part of the Medi- Medicare Advantage effort, learned a lot about HCC codes and, and the, the mission-driven construct of trying to create time and space to help address these issues. But ultimately, the VA is possibly the only health system and institution in our country that can effectively do this right now and and, and is really looked at as and should be looked at as an incredible innovation opportunity for the country to test new care and payment models, to create policies that could be adopted by cms and medicaid you know i i'm aware of medicaid waivers that came out to try to help support social determinative health elements but you know the, the va has invested in homelessness programs the va invested in recreational therapy programs for helping address uh, social isolation but we've been doing that for for decades so when i came from the private sector to the VA, just being able to appreciate the amount of of depth and intentionality in these core areas that are continually expanding because of the opportunities that we have at our disposal to to really focus on on these issues. You know, the VA always has opportunities for improvement, but it's not surprising at all to me after going from the private sector to to VA care delivery environments. The, the VA will continue to lead in this area. And what I hope to see more of is adoption from CMMI. That's actually the Center for Care and Payment Innovation at the VA is essentially our version of CMMI applied to our system in partnership with private sector as well. Mm-hmm. But you, you have to be able to realistically measure what Currently exists, then be able to uh, allocate resources accordingly and staff it continually, in in a in a way that is actually sustainable and considered a part of everyday care delivery, not not just a pilot, not just a research effort, and and that's what we hope to continue to do at the VA. Yeah,
0: let me double down on what you're saying. So, as you know, I published a book it's called Beyond the Walls. It's about the transformation of American healthcare. And I have nine chapters in the book, two of the chapters, and I don't think I actually ever realized this until this moment, two of the nine chapters in my book come out of the VA. There's a chapter on contextual care, 20 years of research, the two people who literally coined that term and have created that entire new field, which most people aren't even aware of. I would venture to say 99.999% of physicians and healthcare executives have no idea of what contextual care is. And I have a whole chapter devoted to it coming directly out of research in the VA. And the other chapter is about whole person care. And again, I would venture to say that most people are, are completely unaware, completely unaware that the Surgeon General has written about the VA's whole person healthcare national deployment and said that it should be spread throughout the country as the core of public health, as well as our our national care system. And there was actually a 406-page report just this January about the VA's whole person. Two out of nine chapters in my book come out of the VA. So I completely agree with you. It's almost remarkable that this is almost sort of like a hidden thing. And you talked about the connection to CMMI. I guess my question, and this is, I think, potentially, it's way above my pay grade, and, and it might be above yours, but... I've had the opportunity recently to to talk to the deputy director at CMS, who's an amazing clinician and physician and happens to have a PhD in economics, just brilliant, Dr. Seshamani. And looking at the work she does, I guess my question for you, Cole, is, is CMS, is CMMI connected to your work? And if so, why not? And why haven't we heard more about this? I mean, it seems to me that you you are the test place, the test kitchen for, you know, the future of healthcare, both in the clinical care, technologically aided care, digital care, virtual care, payment innovation. How strong is that connection?
1: So what we work with and have connected with CMMI related to the Center for Care and Payment Innovation efforts, I think context uh, is is really important because CMS uh, still falls within the walls and, and restrictions across state lines, right? Mm-hmm. One of the amazing advantages that the VA has being a federal entity is federal supremacy. That's actually why we're able to lead and have led for decades, once again, in telemedicine, because if you have a license in any state, you're able to practice across the whole country. So we have incredible advantages from that standpoint. When a veteran moves from California to Charleston, we have their data, we have their information, we have insights and they can get seen anywhere in the country because that was how it was designed uh, from the beginning. So from a policy standpoint, from a partnership standpoint, I think uh, CMS is an incredible team, CMMI is doing great work, but it's, it's uh, apples and oranges from the standpoint of policy and, and laws and restrictions uh, based on they're working with health systems that provide care, they're the insurer. We're the health system, right? And, and we actually are able to, we get funded through Congress to execute on our mission. So uh, we do have third-party reimbursement as a part of VA care, but it is not the majority of where our funding comes from by any means. So our our focus and our flexibility and our adaptability due to those advantages is so different from what CMS and CMMI typically has to work within that there are some adaptations that we can keenly learn from uh, in terms of their pilots and studies but there, there are also advantages that the VA has, that are exceptionally unique. That once again is why I think uh, from a testing environment, it's, it's an incredible opportunity. We're, we're able to track outcomes in ways that would be incredibly difficult going across state lines. Uh, so it's, it, it's something that we're continuing to work on developing that relationship and looking at opportunities for partnership the Center for Care and Payment Innovation actually has waiver authority. So, if there is a law, for example, that may be restricting our ability to pilot test a, a new care delivery innovation, we have that as a tool where we could present that to Congress and actually have, you know, if approved, a law waived for that pilot for it to be tested within the VA. So this institution was, or center was created with uh, the the mission act, and has developed and refined itself to get into a place now where I think that that partnership with CMMI will will be exceptionally helpful for CMMI and CMS. Yeah, well, thank you
0: for you know exposing some of the reality of the situation, but it is sort of a sort of a stark reality that just even taking the fact that look if you're a clinician, a nurse, a physician, a PA, you're licensed in a state. It makes so much sense as in the VA, if you're licensed, you're licensed and you can deliver care anywhere in the country. Why is it that in the private sector outside of the VA that a physician, I mean, the, we're human beings. I mean, there's there's no difference in taking care of a person in Florida or Mississippi or California or it, It's the same thing. And yet, having gone through this a number of times, the restrictions are unbelievable and the bureaucracy is unbelievable. And if you're a great clinician, why shouldn't you be able to take care of a patient who needs your expertise, even if they don't live in the same state? It's ridiculous. And I think going back to your point, it's inhumane. And I think there's a there's a moral issue here that I talk about in Beyond the Walls. The metaphor is so, so powerful in that we have so many walls that have been put up that limit, constrain, suboptimize, optimize and even harm the folks who are in the healthcare industry and the people who are being served by it. And this is just another wall, as far as I can see. And I understand the, the realities of payment in the private sector, but but boy, oh boy, if we know this works, why aren't we accelerating this and adopting what you all are developing and... It just shows, again, the sort of political walls, the policy walls. And, and again, it, this is not a criticism of anyone, because I think the folks at CMS and HHS and CMMI and the CDC and NIH, I mean, they're just, I agree with you. I'm, I'm just shocked that they're really moving. They're really accelerating. So mission-driven, so competent. It's just mind-blowing how, how brilliant they are. So it's not a criticism of any of that, but it is a criticism of the glacial speed at which we adopt what we know to be the right thing to do, and have evidence for, and yet at the same time hold on to things that we know are the wrong things to do, and and again, I I really appreciate you being so thoughtful about these, and and yeah, you know, I don't know, catalyzing this conversation with me today.
1: No, I, I appreciate it, and and you know, I I look at this, you know, because it, it often when we're talking about these areas, it it, it can. It can be frustrating to realize like the amount of obstacles, but I I had the fortunate opportunity to partner with a group of people that focus on this concept called positive deviance. Mm -hmm. And the long and short of what this is, is this cohort of nutritionists went to Vietnam to try to help with early childhood malnutrition. And at the time there was um, a trade embargo when they went over there. So the political regime was not so, Attuned to having uh, Americans come over and, and help with anything. So they sent them to the most devastated area where 65% of children were malnourished and told them, you have six months to show us results or we're pulling your, your visa. So they went down there and they realized, you know, I'm not gonna be able to roll out an evidence-based protocol in that time frame. So instead, they thought to themselves that there's 65% of kids that are malnourished, there's 35% that are not. Who among them, based on all the risk factors, all the obstacles, all the things that are holding back the sixty-five percent, who among the thirty-five percent share those same obstacles, because they're thriving in spite of that, and they went part brought this concept up to the community, helped identify the positive deviance, the statistical term of uh, community members that had those risk factors but were healthy, observe the behaviors that they exhibited as a pattern, demonstrated them, and had those community members teach the rest of the community what they were doing. Hmm. And they were able to uh, make a huge impact, reduce uh, malnutrition upwards of 40% within six months, but more profoundly, repeated that approach, not with what the answers were as identified in that particular community, but the approach of finding positive deviance, all of which in each community had different answers. And they were able to replicate that outcome effect uh, about 270 to 280 times within the next few years. Hmm. I say that mostly because we have positive deviants in healthcare that are overcoming these issues. I think the VA is a big one, right? Where, where we have veterans that absolutely struggle with social determinants of health struggle with mental health issues are, mm-hmm. you know, in various forms of socioeconomic status. We care for the the, the populations uh, that we're always trying to help support and we're succeeding, you know, in many ways. And so I, I see that as, you know, we need to leverage those opportunities uh, with the VA as well as in the private sector. And I think your book actually alludes a lot to that, or who are the positive deviants? Who are the people that mm-hmm. are Actually, transforming even in, even in spite of those obstacles and restrictions, and I think COVID opened the door a little bit for us to realize that rest, uh, reciprocity laws are necessary, and and we're stumbling in the right direction with that, but uh, we we still have a long way to go.
0: Boy, oh, boy, Cole, I am I am so glad that you talked about, and I read, I think you you authored something about positive dividends and. You're right. I, I studied this and, and learned about this a number of years ago that essentially, you know, we've got a lot of problems out there. And like you say, the majority of what's happening may not be working well, but somewhere there is someone doing something right. And there's two ways to go. Study the problem, study the problem, study the problem, or study those who have the solutions. Find them, identify them. As you say, there's, there's a, a statistical, mathematical, quantitative part to this, but identify those positive deviance T.S., and their positive DBNCE, CE and study them and see what they're doing, and then adapt it, spread it, scale it, and test it. And it's so fascinating that that is, I hadn't realized, but that is exactly what I've been doing for the past few years in having these conversations like the one we're having today, where intuitively, I don't even know that I did it purposely or intentionally, but intuitively I said, I, I need to find those people, those organizations, those initiatives that are positive deviants, that they're doing something right. They're reversing what most of us are struggling with. And I've literally had hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of those conversations with positive deviants. And to your point, that is exactly, and thank you for pointing it out, that is exactly what the book I just published is about. It's it's Beyond the Walls is a collection of journeys and examples and exemplars of positive deviants that are reversing the tide and I'll tell you something, Cole, and I, I'd love to hear your personal experience with this and professional experience. I have a lot of colleagues out there who are, in fact, burned out, or jaded, or pessimistic about the current state of healthcare and the future of healthcare. And I have to tell you something: I am completely the opposite. I have never ever been so hopeful and optimistic, cautiously so, but optimistic about the future of healthcare. And it's because of people like you, it's because I've literally been focused on the positive deviance for the past eight to 10 years, made it my business to find them out, discover them, talk to them, explore with them what they're doing and share that with others, both in the podcast and the book. And I think your method, this method of positive deviance is one that we underappreciate and don't do enough of, particularly in healthcare, but I suspect across the board. So I'm just, uh, again, you've given me so much, even a greater understanding of what what it is I've been doing and a greater appreciation for it. And I'm hoping others hear this out there that, you know, there are solutions out there. This is not about hypotheticals. There's nothing in my book, by the way, that's hypothetical. There's nothing that is sort of a thought leader, like, boy, if we could only do this, none of that. The book is predicated on reality, on what already exists, which I think is that example you shared in Vietnam, and there's so many others, right, across the... Science and, and technology and medicine and healthcare of of the examples like you you talked about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's an entire field of literature on this, and but I you know Monique Sturden and Jerry sternen were the the initial like stewards, if you will, of this this approach to really helping address complex adaptive problems, which are the majority in healthcare, quality improvement, and uh, lean six sigma are fantastic at simple and complicated problem resolution. They're inappropriate for complex adaptive system problems because it it, it can't fully grasp the 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 complexity in, in nature. And that's where positive deviance and other approaches really work very well and and why you you've been a steward of this through your experience that you've articulated. You know, Monique said to me once, Uh, Because I I asked her, I'm like, well, I want to be an expert in positive deviance. And she said, well, I'm not an expert in anything. I'm a catalyst with questions, not an expert with answers. And that was profound to me because when you're trying to work through difficult situations where you see people suffering, the best thing you can do from that advice to me was ask more questions, really understand what's going on. Because all too often, we're solving the wrong problem.
0: Wow. I wish we could just play back what you just said. I think it captures the essence of it. These problems are complex, adaptive problems. You know, it's interesting in the preface to Beyond the Walls, actually in the intro to Beyond the Walls, I think it is, I share that I read a book called The Innovation Stack by Jim McKelvey, and he's the guy who created a square that little plastic thing you stick into a phone and a device and and you can actually swipe a credit card. And he's gone on and done other entrepreneurial ventures as well over the years. But he talks about the fact that, you know, entrepreneurs, th- these unique people are solving what he calls perfect problems. And he actually, he talks about them going beyond the walls, which is quite honestly, and I say this explicitly where I borrowed the, the title for the book. I hadn't realized I was interviewing beyond the wall thinkers and doers until I read his book. And he talks about the perfect problems that they solve as problems that we have the technology to solve. So that's not the issue. It it can be solved today with what we have at hand, the tools we have. The problem is our conceptualization. The problem is that people are trying to solve the wrong problem with the wrong tools. And these beyond the wall thinkers are, I think his perfect problem is exactly what you talk about, this complex adaptive set of problems that requires a different way of thinking. And I, I love what you said, this sort of being a catalyst with questions rather than an expert with answers a catalyst with questions rather than an expert with answers and i find it reassuring because and encouraging because i resonate with that because obviously what i'm doing here with you is and with myself and with the folks who are listening is is asking questions more than anything else obviously there are solutions and as i'm looking at the clock too i realize we haven't even gotten to the brilliant solutions you've been deploying in the va which are amazing, but I think it's a really, really important point that is often missed. In fact, I would say largely missed and misunderstood by leaders across the country who are trying to solve these complex adaptive problems with the tools and approaches that are just not built for that. Thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, this this is a reoccurring struggle. So when I did training in in uh, my preventive medicine residency and in did My MPH, the focus was on quality improvement, and it was an incredible learning experience where you know I got to you know learn from Paul bataldin right? Like this, wow. Uh, and uh, Elliot yeah. Fisher, and 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 wow. This like cohort of people, and and then Elizabeth Thiesberg from uh, Value Based Care. So this this construct of of improvement, but then uh, when going through it, there was the context that was missing. And so I sought after, you know, I need to learn more about community organizing. Mm -hmm. I need to learn the story and the narrative and to listen in a way that the quality improvement approaches are not expanding the aperture in your, in in your words too. And so I explored that that's where positive deviance became something that I, 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 needed to be a part of, um, and got trained as a community organizer because I, I, wanted to understand those dynamics. And all that is to say that the context or the contextualizing of care that you're referring to Hmm. is is really the ability to listen to those on the front line, to listen to patients that are living the struggle and identify those that are succeeding in spite of that and creating a platform for them to co-design and redesign care as it should be in context and and that's something that is theoretically talked about quite often. The context is so important. But from a practical approach, it's very difficult culturally to be able to serve as a catalyst with questions and, and literally your role as a facilitator of change being led by other people. So that's not something that's a comfortable thing for healthcare professionals who are told their entire career that you have to have the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's, it's why these things, although have been around for decades are so hard to adopt.
0: Yeah. You know, again, just, we're talking about tools and approaches and conceptual frames and the fact that you trained here, you are a physician and a technology expert, and you trained in community organizing. This is exactly the type of example we're talking about that. We need new frameworks. We need to reframe the problem just to, to say it again, I mean, you're saying that, listen, the toolkits we have and have used are, they're good, but they're they're not enough. And we need to start to think in different terms. And the idea of actually studying community organizing and using community organizing as an approach within healthcare delivery, I just think is a concrete, brilliant example of how we need to widen that aperture, that we need to understand that the tools we've been using, the, the way we've been framing the problem is just, we have to step back and do that. That was you know, I tried to call that out in in my first book on reframing healthcare, and because I noticed that's what that's what people like you were doing. Quite honestly, I was shocked. It took me a few dozen interviews before I was like, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you, you're you're doing something I I I don't see happening." I didn't have even I didn't even have a term for it until like a year or two later, after interviewing you know dozens and dozens of entrepreneurs and leaders in healthcare, and I realized, my God, they're reframing healthcare, they're reorienting, they're coming up like you did, saying, "Listen." These tools we have, QI, process improvement, they're good, but they're not good enough yet. We we need to expand that and bring in other frameworks. And I and I do think that's that diversity and divergence of thought and thinking and problem solving is really that's where we need to to go if we're going to solve this, what is clearly a dilemma and a multi-multi-decade dilemma, which unless you know leaders start to see this, I, I don't think we're gonna get out of this mess. And I will say this: it gives me unbelievable hope unbelievable hope and encouragement and inspiration that we have people like you in healthcare. And what's astounding to me is like, here you are, you're you're like a hidden gem. And I know you're surrounded by other hidden gems in the VA. And I I literally, today I'm posting another interview with someone else in the private sector. And it's just like, oh my God, these people are so, so brilliant and so mission-driven and so energetic and so accomplished and with so much potential. And I look at that and I am overwhelmed with just positivity about that. And so I just call, I just want to thank you. I will say we we are at time here. I'd love to consider this part one of our conversation and come back with you and do part two and focus on what you do day in and day out, which is, is payment innovation and clinical care delivery innovation and some of the amazing, amazing deployments you're doing. I'd really love to just... Maybe dive in, and hopefully we could schedule that sometime soon. But just what's your gestalt now? what do you what are you thinking and feeling about what I've just said?
1: well, i what what you expressed makes a lot of sense to me because I felt the same way when I got to work with with patients that were positive deviants themselves. and it it gave so much hope uh, to realize that we have brilliant people in various areas that you get to to learn from and to be humbled by, and I I would, I say that I, you know, I I appreciate your very kind words, but I I would also say that the the reason why I've been able to do uh, and partake in the things that I have is, is because of being able to listen from others, what they've experienced and try to adapt from, from what they uh, identified as something that's helpful. And I, I know that your passion is also related to food insecurity from what I read. And my personal experience with positive deviance actually was around that. And I'll, I'll leave us just with one short yeah. story that sure. just absolutely shook my world as when I was a resident. So we had a group of complex diabetic patients that were really struggling with managing their their medical condition. We tried multiple QI (laughs) initiatives to try to help in this rural clinic. And I I attempted to use this positive deviance approach. We identified positive deviance through the data. We interviewed them, asked them to serve as experts to help create change. And they came up with a modality of, well, we should have a community meeting with others like us that are struggling, where we can share our lessons. And we will tell you when we need additional support and help. At one of these meetings, we had a patient stand up and express, you know, I've been told a number of times by my healthcare providers that I need to eat certain foods. I'm ashamed to say this, but my entire family, we get our food through our local food pantry and there isn't many healthy food options. And you can, it still gives me kind of goosebumps that like, why haven't we thought of this, right? The other community members were equally, you know, distraught by hearing that. So they called their local farmer friends and local community members to start donating healthy food to these key food pantries that didn't have access to it. They recommended involving uh, the New Hampshire Food Bank at the time to to see how we can better coordinate care. All this was driven by patients. So I, I say that because often we talk to, you know, our healthcare professional colleagues to think about transformation but there's a hidden gem everywhere when it comes to patients that are doing it every day that have the courage and willingness to advocate for change uh, in partnership. So I, I you know continue to hope to see that, but it from a, uh, that experience, I think, is expressive of you know how much we still have to learn and, and the incredible opportunities out there. Wow, Cole,
0: I can't thank you enough for expanding this notion. I was really thinking about is looking at other clinicians or providers or, or entrepreneurs is positive deviants solving problems. But I think you really, really widen the aperture in, in a real way to say, listen, it's not, how about patients, right? How about people out there? We tend to think about intervening or acting upon patients and patients as problems or having problems, but patients, people have solutions as well. And I think noticing that, learning from that, studying that, sharing that, spreading that really is the right reframe. And it's so fascinating you mentioned it, because it's something I'm actually working on right now. And again, you've helped me with that, this notion of the power of patients, for lack of a better term, but the power of people working together in network, as you just described, when you put a few people together who have similar conditions or dealing with issues of health and healthcare, and they begin to network and work with each other and look at their positive deviance and create solutions. And I think you even even thinking about this in, in the context of almost community organizing and learning from that and leveraging that, I, I think it is one of the most under leveraged resources in healthcare today is the power of people to heal themselves together. And uh, so I'm really, really glad you opened that up and, and pointed that out to me and to us. Super, super helpful. Because again, most of it is still very much, even though it's it's wonderful, it's very much mired in this, You know, let me teach you, let me coach you, Patient, as opposed to, how about we work together and learn together, and to your point, co-create and and look at at creating this positive deviance. So, can't thank you enough, Cole. I hope we can do part two. We'll pick up on this conversation, and then again, really want to share with folks some of the amazing technology that you are working on and, and deploying at the VA in in a big way at scale, and the amazing humanitarian changes it's it's making in, in, in effectiveness and efficiency and safety and helping providers and their teams are reducing burnout and and really improving patient care and making it much more personal and customized. So I'd like to give you one last word, any particular message to folks before we sign off.
1: I just thank you for what you're doing each day and that you're not alone and there are people out there that are are trying to help. Yeah, thank you. I, I
0: appreciate that. Sometimes it does feel like we're alone. So, folks, I mean, I can't thank our guest today, Cole Zanetti, enough for being here with us. And again, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'd prep to talk about some of the technology work that he's doing, some of the digital innovations he's been deploying, he and his colleagues at the VA. was not prepared for this kind of conversation although i can't tell you how much i've enjoyed it and benefited from it i hope you have as well and as i do every episode i'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients and those of you who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients i and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, their families, their communities, and our society as a whole. My friends, this is Zeb Newworth on Creating a New Health Care. Until next time, be safe and be well.